Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains serious discussions on sexual assault, rape, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is Season 5, Episode 6, and we are so excited for you to join us. And for those of you who are not new to the show, you might notice a few audio changes in this episode. And that is because Abby and I uh, used to live in the same city. We both used to live in Syracuse, New York. But now we live in different cities. Um, Abby is still in Syracuse and I am now in Buffalo, New York. So this is us trying to figure out remote recording. It is not uh, the ideal sound that we want. So the sound that you're hearing for this episode is not forever. It will be changing. It will become better. So thank you guys so much for being patient with us as we try to figure all this out. Uh, like I said, like before in previous episodes, this is just a, a two-woman job. It's just Abby and I doing this podcast. We do all the researching. We do all the audio. So again, thank you guys so much for being patient. And like I said, this sound isn't forever. We are working on getting it fixed. So thank you. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1981 American black comedy horror film, An American Werewolf in London. It was written and directed by John Landis, and it stars David Naughton, Jenny Agutter, Griffin Dunn, and John Woodvine. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it first. Still here? Okay, great. Then let's get this morning started. So writer-director John Landis came up with the story while he was working in the former Yugoslavia, which is now Croatia, as a production assistant for the 1970 film Kelly's Heroes. Yes, that movie is so good. <laughs> he and a local member of the crew were driving in a car on location when they came across a group of Roma. The Romani appeared to be performing rituals on a dead man being buried so that he would not quote-unquote rise from the grave. This made Landis realize he would never be able to confront the undead and gave him the idea for a film in which a man would go through the same thing. And this is a quote from Landis. He says, The Romani really did look like dress extras on the Universal backlot dressed like Maria Uspenskaya from The Wolfman. This was 1969. We put a man on the moon in 1969, and these people are worried about a zombie? So I was very taken by the idea. Landis wrote the first draft of An American Werewolf in London in 1969 while in Croatia, but he ended up shelving it for over a decade. Wow. In the meantime, Landis gained cult status in 1973 due to his debut film, Schlock, a horror comedy about a Bigfoot character named Schlock who falls in love with a beautiful blind woman. 
Landis not only wrote and directed the film, but he also played the titular character. Hmm. Landis soon grew from cult to box office status in Hollywood through his successful comedy films, The Kentucky Fried Movie, National Lampoon's Animal House, and The Blues Brothers, before securing the finances from Polygram Pictures for his shelved werewolf film. Filming took place between February and March of 1981. That is a quick shoot. Yeah, that's like no time at all. Yeah. Uh, And this was because Landis wanted the weather to be continuously bad for a more grim atmosphere. The more scenes were filmed around the Black Mountains in Wales, and the fictional East Proctor is, in reality, the tiny village of Crickadarn, about six miles southeast of Bulith Wells in Wales. (laughs) Wow. That is quite a mouthful. (laughs) The pub shown in the film known as the infamous Slaughtered Lamb, was actually a cottage located in Crickadarn. The interior scenes of the Slaughtered Lamb were filmed in the Black Swan of Martyrs Green in Surrey. And for those who don't know, Surrey is a county in England. Good Lord, all these (laughs) names. (laughs) Holy crap. An American Werewolf in London was the first film allowed to shoot in Piccadilly Circus in 15 years. Wow. So for those of you who don't know, Piccadilly Circus is an excruciatingly busy road junction. The circus is close to major shopping and entertainment areas in the West End of London and is known for its video display and neon signs that are mounted on the corner building on the northern side, as well as the Shaftesbury Memorial Fountain and Statue. Oh, wow. It's considered a popular meeting site and tourist attraction. And of course, in the 80s, it was filled with porn theaters. <laughs> So, Mm, excellent. How did Landis accomplish getting the permits to film there? Well, he did it by inviting 300 members of London's Metropolitan Police Service to a private screening of his then newly released film, The Blues Brothers. Oh. They were so impressed by his film that they granted the American Werewolf production a two-night-only filming permit between the hours of 1 and 4 a.m. Amazingly, traffic was stopped only three times for two-minute increments to film the automobile stunts involving the double-decker bus. Wow. So the film was released a few months later on August 21st, 1981, and with a budget of only $5.8 million, an American werewolf in London earned a total $62 million at the box office, making it a big success. Huh. Kim Newman of Empire Magazine praised the film, saying, quote, Carnivorous lunar activities rarely come any more entertaining than this, unquote. And Tom Huddleston from the time from Time Out also gave the film a positive review, saying the film was, quote, not just gory, but actually frightening. Not just funny, but clever, unquote. Hmm. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. David and Jack are two American backpackers making their way across the sprawling moors in England. Tired from their journey, they stop into a pub called The Slaughtered Lamb for a bite to eat and immediately find themselves in a very awkward situation, 
realizing that the locals don't take very kindly to outsiders. They begin asking questions about a peculiar star hanging on the pub wall, but instead of answers, they receive only hostile glares. The pub patrons send them packing before they even have a chance to sit down and eat, but not without a foreboding farewell. The bartender begs the patrons not to let the boys just walk out into the night, but they're thrown out anyway, with a warning to keep to the road, stay clear of the moors, and beware the full moon. The boys soon find themselves lost, as they are circled by a large howling beast. They're attacked, but since it is too shadowy to see much, they cannot tell who, or what, it may be. Jack is dragged off into the night, and David gives chase, only to find his friend torn to shreds. Moments later, David is attacked by the same beast under the full moon, but he is left alive. He wakes up in a hospital in London, and after being told by an American ambassador that Jack was killed after an attack by an escaped lunatic, David begins to insist that they were attacked by a giant wolf. David remains admitted under the watch of a lovely nurse named Alex, who ends up falling in love with him. While in the hospital, Jack appears to David as a corpse. His skin is ripped open, and he is very dead-looking. He explains to David that they had been attacked by a werewolf, and unless David kills himself, he'll commit the same attack that was perpetrated on the boys. Believing Jack to be a figment of his imagination, he ignores Jack's advice. David's doctor suspects that there is more to the story as well, and as David makes his full recovery and stays with Nurse Alex, the doctor does some digging and finds out that David's theory wasn't that crazy after all. He visits the slaughtered lamb, and one of the pub-goers tells the doctor that everyone around David is in danger. As another full moon comes around, David transforms into a werewolf and attacks the citizens of London, committing murders and running rampant through the night until he finally comes to rest in the wolf enclosure at the London Zoo. He makes his way back to Alex's apartment as the authorities begin their search, and David realizes that Jack's prediction was right, and that he has to turn himself into the police before he goes on another murderous rampage. Alex begs him to go and see Dr. Hirsch, who realizes what David has truly become. But before he can do that, he transforms one more time and wreaks havoc on Piccadilly Circus, running through the crowds in werewolf form, causing car accidents and killing innocent bystanders. He's cornered by the police, and as they draw near to kill him, Alex finds him and tells him one last time that she loves him. He's shot to death by the police and returns to his human form, and everyone, including Alex, realizes that the werewolf legend is true. Thank you so much, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. It doesn't pass. <laughs> Alex and Susan have one conversation, and it's about David's penis. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes is right, because that's all women talk about is men's penises. Right, so, of know. course. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Ugh. So um, let's talk about Nancy's dream team test. Let's see if that has anything on it. Hmm. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. <laughs> Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. <laughs> Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? No. Dang. 
Yeah, so there's that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's talk about Rick Baker, because he's amazing. Uh, yeah. (laughs) And he's from Binghamton, New York. Get out of town. Yeah, for those of you who are listening who don't know about, you know, New York geography, (laughs) that's just south of Syracuse, where we're from. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so according to David Dupree for the website That Moment When, he says in his 2014 article, quote, In this age of CGI, where directors can create any vision they have on a computer, audiences have become immune to the quote-unquote magic of movie making, expecting everything, no matter how outlandish, to look realistic. Rick Baker was convincing us of reality with prosthetics and effects 30 years ago, and we ate it up. In its time, American Werewolf in London was astonishing for moviegoers and remains a benchmark in the field. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't actually know this until I started researching this film, but uh, Rick Baker won the first Oscar for makeup design for American Werewolf in London at the 54th Academy Awards in 1982. Whoa, that's so awesome! Yes, and the award was presented to him by Kim Novak, who was in Planet of the Apes, the original. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And Vincent Price! Oh my god! Our spook daddy! Oh, man, how cool would that be to accept an award from freaking Vincent Price? I know, and it, you, I'll link the acceptance speech in the show notes, but Vincent Price is so pleased when Rick Baker wins. <laughs> it's so <Aww>. cute. <laughs> After a long career in special effects, makeup, and animatronics with such films as The Exorcist, where he started out as an apprentice under Dick Smith... Harry and the Hendersons, Michael Jackson's Thriller music video, Videodrome, the Men in Black movies, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, and Hellboy, Rick Baker officially retired in May of 2015. He is quoted as saying, First of all, the CG stuff definitely took away from the animatronics part of what I do. It's also starting to take away the makeup part. The time is right. I'm 64 years old, and the business is crazy right now. I like to do things right, and they wanted cheap and fast. That is not what I want to do. I, so I just decided it is basically time to get out. I would consider designing and consulting on something, but I don't think I will have a huge working studio anymore. Oh, that's kind of sad. It's really sad, actually. Uh. Um, so that's Rick Baker. He's awesome. And... Uh, I just want to point out that there is another puppeteer in this film, and it's Frank Oz. What? He is the American embassy representative. No. Yes, because if you go back and watch that scene, you kind of hear Fozzie's voice. And I'm like, what is that? And when I first saw this film, I remember thinking that I was like, that sounds like Fozzie. And then finally, I think my mom was like, that is Fozzie. That's Frank Oz. And I was like, what? Which I can't even believe I watched this with my mom. But that was the first time I saw it was her. (laughs) Oh, no. Yes. This is not a movie that you want to watch with your parents. (laughs) Well, it it was cut for TV, but. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, man. Um, so let's kind of, let's talk about reimagining a horror movie the right way. Mm-hmm. 
So when we think about horror reimagining, what films do we think of? Like, I can think of The Thing and the new Suspiria film and My Bloody Valentine and the 2013 Evil Dead. Like, that's Mm -hmm. what comes to my mind. Yeah. Um, According to David Crow, in a 2018 article for Den Geek, he says, quote, In essence, Landis found a way to successfully remake The Wolfman 40 years after World War II. It's also a neat trick that has eluded Universal ever since with two official Wolfman reimaginings falling flat, 2004's Van Helsing and 2010's The Wolfman. Much like the original 1941 movie, an American werewolf in London remembers that most of these tales are heightened tragedies, and from the very beginning, the 1981 variation is intended as a heartbreaker. And I think that that is... Like, that speaks to me so much, and I think that's kind of what we talked about in our Patreon uh, discussion about the Invisible Man reboot. Yeah. That these films were missing heart, and they were missing gothic tragedy in them. Right. And and I think that that this guy's right. American Werewolf of London does have that. Well, I feel like you can't tell this story without it being heartbreaking. I mean... Even the original one with Lon Chaney, it was so sad. Yeah, it was. And I mean, in a way, this film is the scream of werewolf films. It takes the tropes and like instead of losing them, it embraces them. Mm -hmm. And it shows that they're tropes for a reason. They work. They work really well. And there is something like inherently ancient about them that weirdly works in the modern world. And, like, just like Sid uh, in Scream makes fun of the big-breasted girl who runs up the stairs instead of out the door. (laughs) Yep. David and Jack make fun of Lon Chaney's Wolfman curse similarly. Like, Mm -hmm. they're just like, that's goofy, but then it happens to them. Right. And um, it's also about an American guy in England, a stranger in a strange land, just like the original Wolfman. And. He's not like the others even before he becomes a werewolf. And the film also ends at the height of the drama, much like the original Wolfman film. Right. And, you know, like we mentioned earlier, I think that the reason why werewolf lore has stuck to us so closely in the modern age is because it is so relatable across, like, whatever, gender, culture, race, religion. It's It's almost as if every culture has their own version of a werewolf tale because those fears and desires and the aggression all correlates with nature and the circle of life. Like, it's super universal. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, So speaking of universal, let's talk about Jewish American horror because that's what this film is. Mm -hmm. So... The, John Landis, I should have wrote the joke down. I'm going to try to remember it off the top of my head. But John Landis made a joke on like a DVD extra that I saw where he like there's this guy and his wife and they're fighting and the, they're fighting and fighting. And finally, the wife goes, you know what? You're a schmuck. And the, the husband goes, well, why am I a schmuck? And she goes, well, if if this town had a schmuck, no. If the United States had a schmuck, no. If the country had, like, if the continent had a schmuck, if the world had a schmuck, you would be in second place. And the guy goes, well, why would I be in second place? And then she says, because you're a schmuck. (laughs) 
wow. And I laughed so hard when I saw her. Dang. But John Landis said that that joke describes the werewolf. Yeah. Like, you can't win as a werewolf. Like, there's nothing great about it. And I thought that that was really interesting. So according to Nat Bremer in his article, Seven Horror Films Inspired by Jewish Folklore and History, an American werewolf in London might not pull specifically from Jewish folklore, but it is inherently Jewish, right down to the writer, director, and stars. Yeah. The approach it takes to werewolves is one that deals heavily with inherently Jewish themes of survivor's guilt, a feeling like you don't deserve to live over those who have been killed. That's basically the way David feels about his friend Jack. Plus, you don't think that Nazi nightmare scene was in there just for the hell of it, did you? Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the two friends, Jack and David, arrive to the slaughtered lamb pub in a truck filled with sheep. Yeah, this is absolutely a metaphor for Jews on their way to concentration camps, in my opinion. Yeah. Holy crap. Oh, my God. Yes. And not realizing that they were going there to suffer and die. Like a lot of times, um, I guess, like they would think that they were just going to be held there or they would just work there. But Mm. they were there to be killed. And it's it's disgusting and terrible. Yeah. Um, There's even a star on the wall of the slaughtered lamb, and this could be looked at as like a star of David. In the 1941 film, The Wolfman, uh, which was written by Jewish-German writer Kurt Sidomak, who fled to the USA in 1937, um, he uses that as the mark of the werewolf, and it's a star. You know, that is super interesting, too, because that pub scene also kind of reminds me of, like, hearing stories of Jewish refugees looking to escape Nazi Germany, but they were, like, turned away by people who were afraid of the of Nazis. It's kind of like when the doctor comes around to investigate the pub and, like, what actually happened that night on the moors. It's like, it sort of reminds me of when people were tried for being Nazis in Germany and, like, their crimes against humanity and stuff. And no one wanted to fess up and say that they were part of the problem or that they ignored the plight of Jewish people. Like, that whole pub scene is, it just makes me feel gross. It's it's pretty sad. Yeah, it's cringy. And when you talk about it in this context, it's like, oh, man, (laughs) it feels ten times worse. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, To kind of continue with this, John Landis called the transformation into a werewolf uh, a metaphor for teenage male sexuality. You know, erections. (laughs) But according to Jeremy Wexler, there is also a quality of adolescent revenge fantasy found in the werewolf tale. Landis said that fantasies and nightmares of death at the hands of the Nazis were part of his own psychic landscape as a boy growing up in the 1950s. Wow. In the fantasy world of the werewolf movie, the Jew or Jew surrogate becomes as dangerous and powerful as his tormentors. Wow. And Esther Sachs has an amazing article which is linked in the show notes, called 
What's So Jewish About Werewolves? And she talks more about the themes in the dream sequence. And she says, Movies like An American Werewolf in London invented a way around the societal gag order, and they did it by embracing the truth of the Holocaust as a horror show without a happy ending. When pig-faced Nazis storm werewolf-bitten David Kessler's house in the film, it's post-Holocaust schlock as shock therapy. And, she says, quote, if you count off the usual tenets of a werewolf story, following a lunar calendar, dashing off when the sun goes down, making excuses for weird disappearances, accusations, hunts, being driven off by suspicious townspeople, it's easy to guess why Jewish creators throughout the years have chosen the werewolf as a central horror figure. After all, who could know better how it feels to be both a part of a nation and a nation apart. Wow. Yeah, it's a great, great essay. You guys all have to check it out. Um, this is also really interesting and also very, very unsettling to me how incredibly racist this is. But in German fairy tales, children were warned not to go into the woods, right? Because they might be eaten by wolves. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this, but Yiddish folktales warned their readers not to go into the woods so that they wouldn't be accused of eating children. Yikes. Yikes is right. That is nuts. Mm-hmm. My God. Well, I find it incredibly ironic that this has become like a metaphor for Jewish people, considering the Nazis were like you know, the biggest threat to the Jewish community in modern times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, technically, and they reversed they, it. Yeah, that's so nuts. Oh, that's gross. Yep. So um, H. Leivik, I think is how you say the last name, Leivik, mm-hmm. um, was a Yiddish folklorist of the last century, and he wrote a poem called The Wolf in 1920. And according to Esther Sachs, the poem is about, quote, a rabbi, the last survivor of anti-Semitic violence, who finds himself transformed into the titular beast. Taken to the woods, the rabbi wolf hunts a new generation of Jews who have moved in to rebuild the town and eventually attacks them in the synagogue on Yom Kippur, where he is beaten to death by the congregation. It is interesting to gouge Livek's reaction to the pogroms of his homeland. The wolf, rather than turning his rage upon those who wronged him, instead terrorizes his kin. Livek, it seems, is using the wolf to warn that blood for blood is pointless, for it makes the Jewish victim no different from his non-Jewish oppressors. It is not a revenge fantasy, but rather a revenge nightmare. Ooh, yikes. Yep. That That's a really interesting take because, you know, centuries ago in ancient Greece, around the time when anti-Semitism was, like, first recorded, Jewish people were considered outcasts because of their refusal to conform to, like, Greek and Roman culture and religious practices. So... Mm-hmm. This is sort of it's sort of a story about how a Jewish person might feel out of place not only among his own people but the entire world. And unfortunately, anti-Semitism has its roots deep in world history. So I'm sure that these tales 
must really embody how hard it must have been to be an outcast even among your own people. It's like, I don't know, it's like even among people who are your familiars and stuff like that, if you're even a little bit different, I don't know, humans have this weird tendency to just be like, oh, no. (laughs) So... Well, and Sachs goes on to say that an American werewolf in London reflects the, quote, possibility of Jewish existence in Europe during and after the dehumanizing effect of the Holocaust. If Leivik's desire was to remain the other, these films express the terror of becoming the other in a hostile world. You fit in until you can't. You're one of us until you're not. Mm-hmm. So, um, Rokel Kafferson, uh, she wrote a 2015 blog post entitled Why Jews Love American Werewolf in London. And she says, today I was reading an article from an early 50s commentary magazine. Even then, Jewish self-erasure was a decades-old phenomenon in Hollywood. Rare were the times when authors and directors were able to include identifiable Jews just being Jews. I've got a lot more thoughts on this particular topic and the immense psychic harm it does to all of us, but I will just say it makes me love filmmakers like John Landis even more just for being authentic. Yeah, so that was something I never really thought about. Uh, And so I did a little bit more research about how this film really inspired um, Jewish writers and actors and directors. And I found a really great essay by John Spira, and he's British and Jewish. And he wrote an essay in 2013 about why he loves American Werewolf in London. And in the essay, he describes himself as a fat Jewish kid who was made fun of. And he didn't know why people made fun of him. He didn't understand like why being Jewish was something people would make fun of you for but he assumed like his class name classmates like didn't understand why they made fun of him either (laughs) yeah and at nine years old he just thought that being a jew just meant that you were uninteresting and you were obscure and you know that must have been the reason why yeah and that all changed when he watched american werewolf he says quote my life changed to me in suburban Oxford, Jews were hairy old German sounding men with huge ears and a smattering of young people who would eventually jump ship or become that. I considered Judaism obscure to the point of curiosity. I had no notion that there might be Jews in Hollywood. Hey, I was nine and, and absolutely no notion that a Jew could be interesting. David Kessler became my hero. And he says about the shocking dream sequence, quote, even at nine, I knew there was something far more shocking about it than the gore or the noise. It gets right to the heart of modern post-Holocaust Judaism. It embodies this primal fear that our new Western society could turn on us interlopers at any moment, systematically destroying us like animals while hatefully spitting on our culture. Culture is perhaps the key word. Up to this point in my life, Judaism had been a religion, but this film revealed a culture, intelligent, deeply humorous, somewhat integrated, but always the outsider. It wouldn't be long until dad, his dad, would Mm -hmm. tape Woody Allen and Mel Brooks films for me, and I'd start to feel comfortable in, even proud of, my cultural identity. And then he says... 
I've met John Landis a few times over the years. The first was at a geeky film convention in London, where I was giddy about the prospect of getting my poster signed. I queued patiently, which means he was in line, patiently. (laughs) I queued patiently, and as I approached him, he roared, Oh, finally, a Jew! (laughs) Uncannily mirroring the sentiment that he had inspired in me three decades earlier. Oh, my gosh. And I know that quote was kind of long, but I really wanted to share that with all the listeners because that was a very it was a very inspiring essay. And oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's also in the show notes. So take a take a read, won't you? OK, so let's talk about the idea of werewolves in the 1980s, especially in 1980s America. Oh, Yeah. As we mentioned in our episode about the howling, which is linked in the show notes, the early 1980s saw a strange resurgence of American werewolf films. So according to Harlan Kennedy in his 1982 article, Things That Go Howl in the Id, this is not just because special effects were better, but that, quote, American cinema in the early 80s grappling with the injuries and images of a traumatic past 20 years is in the grip of the most fascinating obsession with split personality horror themes in history. Good guys versus bad guys have long been the staple of popular movies, but in the last two years, good and evil have become knitted up as never so closely or obsessively before in the same skin. When those oh-so-flawless American features warp into feral ferocity, it's as if maidenly Red Riding Hood has herself mutated into the big bad wolf. And this, Kennedy argues, is what spawned the generation that came during and after the Vietnam War, the first war that Americans lost. Yes, I think this was due to the generation that felt like sort of like damned if I do, damned if I don't, especially when it came to supporting the war or not. Like not supporting American efforts in Vietnam was viewed as unpatriotic or like kids gone wild or kids who didn't have any voice of reason or love for their country. And then on the opposite side, you have kids who wanted to support the effort or even like just regular American citizens who wanted to support the efforts of their children, their husbands, their family who served in the military. Like it was a really hard line to walk because at the time, I don't think anyone realized the long lasting effects this would have on American culture. Like, it truly divided us. And those people who protested were, like, the wolves. The people who went along with it were the sheep. And we all felt guilty because we could, maybe we could be doing more or supporting a more worthy cause. And, like, not to mention the feelings of soldiers who came home who'd lost friends in Vietnam. Like, we were talking about survivor's guilt and that kind of thing. So... It's like, it's a perfect narrative for this time period in America. It's this whole, like, good and evil. Like, you think that you're doing good by protesting, but then when you don't have to worry about going to war, you stop. Right. That was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So, you cannot deny the theme of immense guilt in American Werewolf in London. Uh, David is literally haunted by the people he has killed or wronged. So, this blends perfectly into our next topic, which is transformation, foreignness, and animal horror. Hmm. 
So if my memory serves me correctly, we talked a lot about the deviant identity in the transformed body when we did the howling episode. Again, link is in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Um, The article that we got a lot of our research from in the howling episode was the embodied identity in werewolf films in the 1980s. And uh, it's by Julius Kletzer, Kletzer and Charles Forceville. And uh, Quetzier and Forceville start off their essay by citing Paul Wells, saying, quote, Paul Wells considers most monsters in modern horror cinema to be metaphors for certain threats to the prevailing paradigms and consensual orthodoxies of everyday life. They disturb the order and question our established ideas about the value and meaning of what it is to be human. This seems to relate to exactly what we talked about previously, this whole idea of the children of Vietnam having their morals basically turned around. Wow, dang, yeah. And um, David and Jack kind of carry this theme as a couple of Americans who leave the comfort of their home to go backpacking through Europe. And the pub patrons see them as like a couple of wily outsiders, like asking inappropriate questions who don't belong in that part of the country. Their unfamiliarity with the Moors is what leads to their attack. So like maybe in a way, the Englishmen and women in the pub see them as a threat to their existence because they know that if they survive a werewolf attack, there will be another one on the loose. And that just starts multiplying the werewolf population and causing more problems. And they just become another mess that they'll have to clean up after. So it's it's literally disturbing their way of life. And they're like, oh, man, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> right, exactly. And when discussing animal horror... Paul Wells states that this subgenre often prompts a, quote, deeper recognition of the required consensus and constraint needed to achieve even the most basic level of civilization. So, like, although Paul Wells, like, doesn't use animal horror and transformation horror in the same context, this seems to be, like, a really, like, accurate subgenre more than any other. Like, it's civilized humans themselves who turn out to be capable of switching on and off, basically, and going from one side to the other. Yep. And... You know, if we want to talk about that, like, it becomes part of, like, what you can use to disrupt the order and disrupt the civilization that or society that you're in or a part of. Um, And then if you really want to look at it a different way, rather than the English people, like, harping on David because he's because he's American, David uses this uses his non-Englishness to offend a police officer by insulting English culture. <laughs> yes. He like he says like Queen Elizabeth is a man and Shakespeare was French. <laughs> and David wants to establish his identity as that of a threat to the values of English society so that they arrest him and put in so he doesn't kill anybody. Right. Um and the officer doesn't take him seriously, which, you know, cuz he thinks that David is just acting like an animal. What's so sad is that the officer, like, doesn't realize that the animal inside of him is worse than, like, what he is seeing. Like, he just uses it lightly, sort of, you know? Right, yeah. And it could be said that the pub patrons were insulting American culture early on, saying that the Alamo, which is a John Wayne movie, was bloody awful. And then (laughs) they tell a joke about ridiculous yanks and 
you know, how this Texan guy threw a Mexican guy out of the plane. It was terribly, terrible joke. And, you know, it makes them as Americans who had nothing to do with any of that makes them feel uncomfortable. Right. And so really, who's the animal in this? It's is something here like the the big metaphor, like foreignness is transformed body. Right. So let's talk about Alex. The... <laughs> And this whole idea of David looking for a mother. So David Dupree argues quite well that David, our main character, is from an absent family. Mm-hmm. He has been in a hospital for three weeks for crying out loud. And his best friend has been killed. Yet his parents are nowhere in sight. In fact, his parents only appear in the traumatizing dream sequence. Unbelievable. Like, freaking believable to me. Yes, and even when David calls home near the end of the film to tell his family goodbye, only his 10-year-old sister is home to answer the phone. (laughs) And David even makes, like, a really sad comment about, like, how he wasn't able or wasn't allowed to be home alone when he was 10, but yeah. now his little sister is. So. <laughs> you little jerk. <laughs> <laughs> he calls her a little creep. <laughs> yes. But it's kind of sad, you know, and Alex, who is supposedly David's love interest, um, well. and we say supposedly because <laughs> that sex scene <laughs> is absolutely terrible. It is the worst sex scene in the history of sex scenes. <laughs> it's just... It's like when you take two Barbies and you just sort of rub them together, like when you were a kid, like, yes. and you were trying to stimulate it's sex so between them. That's what it is. It's weird. It's yes, just... it's so unnatural. Ugh. So Alex is weirdly seen in the children's ward of the hospital, like she's a children's hospital nurse, and she's seen there a lot, especially with one boy who always just says no. Ugh. And she tries to give this little boy pills and tries to make small talk with him about his comics and whatever. And, you know, at one point she jokingly says, like, have you ever been beaten on the neck and face? (laughs) Okay, like, what? (laughs) I know, she's just so up to here with him, I guess. Oh, my God. And she knows his response is going to be no. But then this is kind of weird because Jack was slashed by the werewolf on the face and neck. Right. Mm. Well, that's why, that's always why I have, like, thought that she asked him that. But I'm like, what a freaking weird thing to ask. (laughs) Have you ever been beaten on the face and neck? (laughs) Like, no, Alex, I'm a child. (laughs) I'm an innocent child. Sorry. Well, and to kind of go more into this whole thing about Alex taking care of children, she also says that she has to feed David and she speaks to him like a child and she says, like, am I going to have to force you to eat? And shall I read to you while he's in bed? Not that reading to somebody that you love is is like a mother to child thing ever. It could be something that you do with your husband or with your wife or your partner. Um, But the if you kind of take everything else that she does like for children and like then the whole reading to him while he's in bed type thing seems very much like a mother son relationship yeah for sure anyway <laughs> david is sad and alone and i think he finds a mother wife in alex yikes <laughs> 
she makes her own money. She owns her own apartment, which he uses freely that day. Yeah. Like, he just goes around and, like, goes in her fridge and all that crap. And David, who is the son of a doctor, uh, we can assume he uses a lot of his parents' money, especially for this trip. Also, that freaking sex scene is so emotionless. And it's like these two people have never touched another human before. Yes. And honestly, I think that it's intentional. I do, because I don't think it's supposed to be this grand sex scene. It's I think it's supposed to be awkward and unnatural, because let's go back to John Landis saying that the werewolf transformation is a symbol for an erection. This might be David feeling guilty for having sexual feelings for a woman who is more like a mother. It's painful, it's scary, and it's wrong. Well, and I mean, David definitely relies on Alex as his like safe space. Like he's he's a lost little puppy, no pun intended, with no friends or family or sense of how to function after his release from the hospital. And Alex takes pity on him because of this and even clarifies that she isn't like a loose woman. Like she says that she isn't in the habit of bringing home young American men or something like that. And David says, I should hope not. So even though he's joking, he's obviously hoping that this goes to the next level, probably for his own benefit. It's just... Yeah, it's weird. It it is weird. I don't like it. (laughs) No. They have, like, no chemistry. (laughs) They don't. I hate it. (laughs) It sucks! (laughs) Okay, so uh, speaking of that terrible sex scene... Abby texted me while she was watching it, and she was like, God, I hate all these moon songs in this film. And then, so during that scene is Van Morrison's moon dance, which I like on its own, but does not fit the scene at all. Oh my God, I want to like barf every time. And all the nights, magic. Like while they're like awkwardly embracing each other in bed, I can't. I can't. There are so many moon songs in this film. It's some people really love it. I don't think it works very well. Me neither. I think it's really cheesy. Not that this film is not does not have some cheese to it, but I don't feel like it fits though in my opinion. I think that the opening song Blue Moon, which I think is Bobby Vinton. Yep. And then the end, which is God, I can't remember that band's name, but at the the end where it's like bop it bop doop da beep. At the end I think is great. Yes. Um that's great. I love that. I love all that. I love that Bad Moon Rising is in it. Yep. But I'm also like, it's too much. It's too much moon. Too many moons. <laughs> so, like, Blue Moon, Bad Moon Rising, Moon Shadow by Cat Stevens, was in it? Moon Dance by Van Morrison. And there's more. That's just the tip of the iceberg. The and tip of the moony iceberg. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, there's a Spotify playlist that is all of the moon songs in American Werewolf of London. All so. the moon songs you could ever want. It's basically the first playlist of moon songs ever, before even Spotify even... <laughs> Yeah, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for saving us the trouble, American Werewolf in London. But yeah, like, speaking of the moon, so usually the moon is a symbol of womanhood, right? Like, it's always been an interesting part of werewolf lore because a majority of these stories have to do with men. But, like, a good example of a female werewolf can be seen in the movie Ginger Snaps. And it's all about... 
a young girl coming to terms with who she's really meant to be and owning that power and really fitting the role, even though it's destructive to her in the end. So for women, like our menstrual cycle and stuff, it's synced up with the moon for some of us, not all of us, obviously. Um, But it's the cycle of new life and regeneration. And woman werewolves are seen, or female werewolves, are seen as powerful, strong beings. Like, it becomes a symbol of their femininity, and it builds them up in a certain sense to become much more fierce than they seem in human form. It's almost like a means of protection for themselves, but it's the exact opposite for men. But David is the perfect example of this. Like, he seems fit, healthy, mentally stable, a typical American guy, but he's still a victim who turns into a monster whose own demise becomes the central focus of the film. So is this maybe a testament to how uncomfortable femininity makes men? Like, I think so, because when men internalize their rage and their feelings of being inadequate, like, in David's case, not being able to save Jack, I think that it becomes destructive. And while the moon seems to strengthen female characters, it makes male characters weak and uncontrollable. And since the moon itself has a female persona, it could also mean that David has never really had a strong connection to a female in his life. So now that he's truly in tune with the cycle of the moon, it's like he's just lost all control. So you have a great final thought that um, I think is really interesting. Uh, I want to hear you talk about it. Yeah. So our final thought has to do with male victimization in sexual assault. I think it is really important to talk about this because the central focus of the film is on a male character, so it becomes the perfect opportunity to discuss male sexual assault victims. And at first glance, this film looks like a typical, like, tropey werewolf film that works really well because, as we've discussed, it's applicable for literally any period of time. But when you do a deep dive into who David is... A typical, healthy, Jewish-American male traveling the British countryside with his friend who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, it works well for the narrative of a rape survivor. Yeah. And when the attack happens, the boys are traveling alone after seeking refuge with a group of locals who quite literally throw them to the wolves as a sort of, like, sacrifice. Yeah, they say, like, it's in God's hands now. Right. And like, like God didn't give you free will to help your fellow man. Right, like, exactly. Oh, that makes me so mad. I know, I know. And the attack happens swiftly, like before the boys even realize how much danger they're in. And in the hospital, after David is attacked, he tells of what happened and that he thinks it was a wolf. But the U.S. ambassador, along with his own doctor, tell him that he is imagining things. Um, Not to mention the fact that David is objectified by one of the nurses while he is incapacitated. Yep, that is not okay. No, it's highly inappropriate. But another thing was that Jack's corpse insists that Jack should kill himself and that he is not worthy of life because he carries this curse mimicking It mimics the anxieties of a lot of assault survivors. Like, 
David's family also seems to be absent in the face of his attack, a problem that many, many men face now. Because of patriarchal rules within our society, we teach boys to man up, that their assault isn't valid because males cannot be raped. And David ends up going through his recovery alone and burying those feelings deep, deep within while Jack warns him of the impending doom and ultimately his demise. And David himself denies it, even though deep down he knows something is wrong. Right. So men are taught to bury these circumstances and often go unbelieved without help or guidance, and it manifests as toxic masculinity, depression, relationship problems, difficulty connecting sexually with another person. Like, the list goes on and on. And I also want to mention that the pub goers are bystanders. They could symbolize how our society treats victims and how, like, blasé rape is in our culture. And sometimes by not saying anything, you're not helping to solve the problem because you're allowing others to get hurt, especially when you know something. It's like if you see something, say something. So when you look at it from this perspective, it really like sheds a light on what society does to male victims and we treat them like others or outcasts or in David's case he becomes a werewolf and we end up perpetrating these cycles through time right I mean uh male sexual assault is underreported yeah and I mean we're doing men a disservice by just dismissing them and saying like oh men can't be raped like that's 100 bajillion percent false so yeah well thank you so much for that final thought abby that was that was really interesting yeah of course so you guys that's it for this week's episode of good morning nancy we hope you enjoyed it don't forget to check out our merch shop we've got mugs and we've got sweatshirts and t-shirts and so much more head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon and you will be taken right to our shop and if you are not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And for just a few bucks a month, you'll be getting some sweet extra content in your coffee. We've got horror reviews uh, for trailers and TV shows and new movies over there. So become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. We're also on Tumblr at Good Morning Nancy. If you're listening to our podcast on iTunes, please feel free to leave us a review. It helps us so much. And you can also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs>